Happy 20th birthday to our favorite arena, the American Airlines Center. Dave Brown, the AAC czar, joins us to talk about the big anniversary, the sprint to get the building finished prior to the big Eagles concert that opened the building back in 2001. And he shares the story of the time Frank Sinatra bummed a cigarette from him backstage. You won't want to miss that. Then, Dr. Jim Beckett, who helped create the modern sports trading card industry with his revolutionary price guide, pops on to talk about Topps losing its license for Major League Baseball trading cards, the $6.6 million sale recently of a Honus Wagner card, as well as other issues and insights around the hobby. And finally, Meredith Land of NBC5 stops by to talk about her experience reporting in Afghanistan, about the time she had to moderate a conversation between President George W. Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger. She says it got a little wheels off and how early in her career she was once known as the Hurricane Hottie. So let's drop the mic and let's go. Mic drop, everyone. Kevin Sullivan here, joined by Monica Paul, the executive director of the Dallas Sports Commission. And of course, our next level intern, Marcus Carr. Thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing, Monica. It's episode 28. This is an easy one. You could start with the with the Rangers. They actually had a string of great pitchers wear number 28. Burt Blylevin, Sparky Lyle, Frank Tanana, Mitch Williams, Darren Oliver. Almost strange how many great pitchers for the Rangers wore 28, but we're not going there. Jan Mahimi wore 28 for the world champion Dallas Mavericks in 2011. Not going there either. It's got to be Darren Woodson this week who wore number 28 for the Cowboys from 1992 to 2003. Member of the Cowboys Ring of Honor. Of course, along with Charles Haley, they're the only members of those 90s defenses that are in the Ring of Honor. So that's kind of cool. Uh, only cowboy who played for both Jimmy Johnson and Bill Parcells. He's a friend of the podcast, the star of episode 13 a few months ago. And oh, by the way, as we discussed with, with some of our recent guests, Rick Gosselin and Drew Pearson, he ought to be in the Hall of Fame. And we hope that one day Darren Woodson is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, great cowboy, great entrepreneur here in, in, in Dallas. Uh, so that's what we're thinking about today. And Monica, we're glad you're back from, from your vacation, a well-deserved vacation. How was it? Well, Sully, it's a little hard to uh, be coming back so, so early the day after a vacation. I think that's been the hardest part so far. But you know what? Uh, I survived a hurricane. Uh, being from Texas, I, I've never been in a hurricane before. So we actually arrived to Isla Mujeres Wednesday right before the, the hurricane hit later that night and uh, into the morning. So uh, that was uh, excitement uh, in, it, in itself. But uh, little work did I do, a lot of great food, a lot of great friends, um, I uh, knew some people there on the island, so I got to reconnect with them and just really hang out and decompress. So we've got a busy few weeks uh, or months, rather, coming up here uh, at the Sports Commission with our FIFA World Cup site visits and other Rugby World Cup and other bids that are coming up and approaching uh, that are pretty big. So it was great to kind of get away a little bit. Well, we're glad you're back. Glad you uh, hopefully got a little rest. I know I know you uh, you deserve the break. Hardest working woman in show business, ladies and gentlemen, Monica Paul. Big time mic drop moment on Wednesday night for FC Dallas, 18-year-old rookie phenom, Ricardo Pepe. This is speaking of FIFA too, Monica. Ricardo Pepe scored the winning goal and penalty kicks in the MLS All-Star game. It was actually MLS versus Liga MX. There was a 1-1 draw after regulation time, and Ricardo Pepe of FC Dallas scores the winning goal in penalty kicks. And Monica, uh, Pepe, who, who is eligible to play for the Mexican national team and the U.S. men's national team, has decided to play on the U.S. side or continue his, his national team career on the U.S. side. He'd be 23 if we're fortunate enough uh, to, to, to uh, be selected in that in that uh, careful FIFA World Cup process you're going through for 2026. That'd be kind of cool to have a local uh, FC Dallas uh, product uh, playing <laughs> without a doubt. Know, in Dallas. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be exciting to uh, 
uh, follow him all the way up and then have someone here local from our, our home team playing for, for Team USA. And, um, you know, I think that's big news, too, that he uh, chose uh, to, to play for USA uh, over Mexico. Both great programs, uh, um, but exciting for FC Dallas and for him, of course, as well. This week, we saw episode three of HBO's Hard Knocks study of the Dallas Cowboys. I know, Monica, you haven't had a chance to, to watch it yet. Through two episodes, ratings were up 13% over last year when the Rams and Chargers shared billing on Hard Knocks. No surprise that a Cowboys appearance would, would drive uh, viewership. And that does not include streaming on HBO Max. So when they add that in, it'll be even bigger. The one thing you've got to do, Monica, is, is go on social media and watch the incredible, unbelievable three-minute-long drone shot through the star that that uh, that aired at the beginning of episode three. If you've never been inside the star, it really shows you every nook and cranny of the place. It's incredible what they accomplished. The drone flies through an F uh, Ford F one fifty all and through all kinds of nooks and crannies. You really get a great glimpse of the uh, of the star. And it also sort of brings to mind the exposure that so many sponsors have gotten through this program, most prominently AT&T, but also American Airlines and Ford and, and, and some others. Once again, when you're associated with the Cowboys, these big national and international things happen. We'll talk more about Hard Knocks next week, but a couple of my favorite parts from last night, you know, Jonathan Jackson was was uh, was spotlighted. He's not a player. He's the supervisor of the mailroom, and he helps out in football ops. And it turns out he's a great card player. And we see him uh, uh, winning at cards against Dak Prescott and and a couple other other uh, Cowboys. So that was cool. We saw Zeke wearing a Luca jersey. I like that. Uh, we saw Isaac uh, uh, Alarcon's mother praying in the stands for her son, trying to move up from the practice squad to make the team this year. That was kind of cool. Uh, and anybody who wears contacts and has ever lost one at an inopportune time could relate to Jaquan Hardy's struggles with his contacts, ultimately shifting to rec specs. So HBO doing a, a really fantastic job with this. Uh, Monica will be talking with our old pal Dave Brown about the 20th anniversary of American Airlines Center soon. Other local venue news, we saw that the old Globe Life Park, the former home of the Rangers has done a naming rights deal uh, with Choctaw Stadium. What do you what do you make of that? Well, that, that's that stadium is uh, important for us in our repertoire of uh, different facilities that we have here. Um, it, it really opens up uh, s some abilities to bid on events that maybe we haven't had the opportunity to, uh, whether it be j based off of time of year and maybe AT&T Stadium not being available or, or Cotton Bowl or even Toyota Stadium. So uh, it opens up some some big opportunities for us upcoming uh we work well with the rangers and sean decker and look looking forward to really putting in some aggressive bids here coming up sounds good we also this week uh monica saw that emmett smith is teaming up with jesse iwuju he's a part-time driver in nascar's truck series and the xfinity series that's a circuit that races primarily on saturdays uh emmett with uh with jesse hopes to form an xfinity series team for next year would you actually use a football player played defensive back at the Naval Academy. He's now a Lieutenant in the Navy reserves. Monica, this guy's job title is surface warfare officer. That sounds pretty, pretty important. Uh, and Emmett says he's a Florida guy. He knows all about Daytona. He knows all about NASCAR. His goal is to provide uh, hope and create opportunity for minorities in the sport. Another another example of a Dallas athlete staying here and doing entrepreneurial things on the business side and philanthropic and social good things on the on the uh, off the field side, so to speak. What do you make of this? Well, uh, you know, I I think it's important for our athletes that are here local to stay involved in our community and invest. And uh, uh, definitely, Emmett's company, Notable Live, sponsored a Wooji's car um in the xfinity series texas motor speedway and other celebrities are uh, kind of following suit with michael jordan to uh to pitbull getting uh involved in nascar ownership uh definitely stories to to look forward to and um you know see what other uh, celebrities come out and try to get into ownership there all right monica back in a moment to talk to dave brown about the 20th anniversary of american airlines center and then Dr. James Beckett and Meredith Land. First, over to Rachel with a word from one of our sponsors. 
Powerhands is a global athletic training and rehabilitation product tech company that enhances human performance through the designs, innovative technology. If you are a coach, athlete, fitness enthusiast, Powerhands is for you. Who doesn't want to improve their overall performance and recovery? Even better, Powerhands is Dallas-based and a portion of every product purchased helps provide athletic and academic programs to youth in underserved communities. Go to powerhands.com and improve your athletic performance today. Thanks, Rach, and welcome to our friend of many, many, many years, Dave Brown. He, he was the general manager of Reunion Arena for many years, starting in 1986. He was a very young man, then shifted <laughs> to the American Airlines Center, where he is now chief operating officer in GM. Monica, we hate to bring you back from vacation with a Texas Aggie right out of the gate. But since Dave is here to talk about the 20th anniversary of American Airlines Center, which is really hard to believe, I know you'll be hospitable. Oh, yes. Uh, Dave Brown is uh, is one of my top people here in DFW. I've, I've uh, Actually, Dave did my interview to bring me here to Dallas. So uh, uh, I think we may have a love-hate relationship, but I actually text Dave uh, a photo during my vacation of a, a Cotton Bowl Classic hat next to an Aggie t-shirt hanging on the roof of a bar and ask him if that was his uh, his. Uh, uh, hat or t-shirt there so this is about the time that we get into our texas versus aggie uh um <clears throat> you know games back and forth so dave welcome to the mic drop thank you monica <laughs> hi sully uh monica has been extremely tolerant of my <laughs> aggie traits and and um it, it has been a love-hate relationship more on the love side though yeah i i would agree there i would agree well, Dave, it's hard to believe it's been 20 years since the Eagles uh, opened at the AAC on July 28, 2001. Uh, tell us uh, and our listeners, what do you remember most about that night? Well, so many things, um, and it was an incredible night. Um, it was a two-and-a-half-year process to get the building uh, uh, built and opened, uh, and it came down to um, acquiring our certificate of occupancy one hour before doors opened. So uh, all throughout the day, um, everything had to happen um, under the uh, safety protocols that were in place when you're building a, in a facility. So stagehands, uh, road crew, even the band, as they're doing their rehearsals and sound check, had to wear hard hats. And so my vision of that day is everyone in heart with hard hats on and then when it finally came to showtime and the Eagles took the stage, they, they, they were a little bit clever and they came back out with their hard hats still on and uh, performed uh, a couple of uh, songs with the hard hats just to, just to uh, I think, uh, give us the business a little bit. But uh, it, it, it is hard to believe it's been 20 years and uh, it's been a magnificent and, and very prosperous uh, 20 years for our facility and, and we've achieved just about every goal we set out. Um, we still uh, have one big one that uh, uh, we want to bring a banner uh, for the stars uh, to the facility. Uh, but other than that, um, it's it's been an incredible uh, uh, journey. So after 20 years, uh, obviously the Eagles opening up, that's, that's very exciting. Um, but you've hosted a lot of events from concerts to obviously sporting events, uh, uh, NBA finals. What, what are your all-time top five favorite events, Dave? Uh, wow. Well, we mentioned the Eagles opening night. That was, um, you know, that was definitely a top five. Um, uh, second, I would say, would be the NBA Finals uh, 2011, um, being able to raise a banner that next season uh, after a championship uh, run by the Mavericks. Um, uh, we've, um, I, I think, in that list, it, it would be the women's final four, which you were uh, instrumental in, in bringing to us in uh, 2017. Um, I think that would be on your top probably five list as well, Monica. But um, um, we also have um, it, it just thousands and thousands of events that, that, that um, you know, uh, we, we've hosted. Uh, Garth Brooks, seven show oh, run. Yeah, that was a good one. 2015. Um, that still holds all of our attendance and, and um, sales records uh, for, for one stop uh, concert play. Um, geez, um, 
uh, it's a long list. And uh, again, we're, we're still building that list um, and, and have some things we still want to accomplish. But the way we really benchmark ourselves is um, looking at similar buildings and similar markets, um, the LAs, the Chicago's, the New York's, the major markets. And we look at uh, ticket sales, we look at number of events, and uh, we're always in that, in that mix. Top five in the US, top 10 to top 15 in the world. Um, and um, uh, that's, that's really uh, you know, how we benchmark our success. And, and, and until a year and a half ago, we were, again, uh, the top of the rankings. Well, Dave, I definitely uh, go back to that women's final four. I happen to be sitting by uh, you down on the floor uh, for that exciting game. And I am not sure I have, si- well, I've been to a lot of events there, but the electricity uh, and environment that in the American Airlines Center that night was uh, amazing. So hopefully we can um, uh, figure that out and, and get that same excitement and electricity going back in there in 2023. <clears throat> um, Dave, I've seen you uh, walk the... Um, concourse numerous times we may be on a site visit or even during an event and you see a piece of trash and you pick that up and you're looking and observing and uh here this is out of place and i have to say that uh for a 20 year old building uh i think the american airlines center is in in pretty good shape and i have to commend you and your team on um and probably your ownership as well uh on ensuring that you know you have you're, you're keeping it up and it's top of the line or the technology or, or whatever it may be in the venue industry. Um, talk a little bit about uh, how important that is to you. Oh, it's, it's absolutely critical. Um, there's two things that are, I think, um, set the American Airlines Center apart from other facilities. One, it was built the right way. It's got great bones. It's got great structure, finishes, uh, furnishings. It was built to be a classic long-term facility. Um, wasn't a bright, the bright, shiny object, maybe, you know, the elliptical steel and glass facility you might see in a lot of uh, builds around that time. Um, and that's one of the reasons when you, when you come up to the building and you don't know if it's been here 50 years or five years. Um, uh, again, our terrazzo floors, our, our, our finishes inside, they're all, they were just all first class when we built this facility. It was the most expensive arena ever built at the time. Since then, um, you mentioned ownership. And that's been the critical um, component in keeping it uh, in the shape it, it is. Um, we've, we've plowed back millions and millions every year uh, to try and keep it state-of-the-art, try and reinvent it in certain ways um, and um, keep everything working. Um, and, you know, this is a it's, a, it's a beast of a building and it takes a, a lot of maintenance, a lot of, uh, a lot of upkeep. And um, our ownership has been 100% committed um, I've never had a ask, capital ask for funding to uh, go into this building that's, that's been uh, denied. It's, it's been an incredible uh, um, uh, 20 years of support from our ownership, and uh, they've, they've plowed over $100 million back into this building since then. Yeah, that, that's incredible. And, and Monica's is right. When I go to an event, almost without exception, I'll see Ken Cool, your, uh, your ace uh, wingman and fellow leader there at the AAC walk in the concourse or or you you know and it just those things don't happen by accident and you know it's funny that right before the building opened I moved to New York to work at NBC Sports so the first you know 15 years of the building I, I lived you know elsewhere and and uh, so my my memories are, are more recent and I, I think of you know, going to Springsteen on the river tour in April of 2016 with Tony Fay. I couldn't, we couldn't talk about this without mentioning Tony and Springsteen. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then sort of, you know, the, the Dirk Nowitzki, the 30,000th point game. I was there March 7th, 2017. That was special. But I think my number one memory as I look back on it, you know, I've been to the, the NHL draft there. Uh, anytime there's a soldiers for seats Mavericks game. I love those. I've been to, two or three of those where the military uh, gets to sit on the front row. That is such a cool night. But seeing Tom Petty on the final tour, the 40th anniversary tour, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in April of 2017, of course, having no clue that he would pass away, uh, you know, six months later, uh, that was, a, a, a you know, a, a cool night. But the, the other thing, you know, you tweeted out from the AAC recently as part of the anniversary celebration an overhead shot of what that area of downtown looked like 
in 2000 or 2001 and what it looks like today. So talk a little bit about just, you know, you talked about the owners putting money back into the building, but the building has given an awful lot back to the city and the community. Yeah, that's that was one of the really the, the driving uh, factors in, in where we put the arena. Um, um, the owners at the time when we chose the site were Ross Pro Jr. and Tom Hicks. And um, it was definitely uh, a development play as well as an arena, uh, an arena build, which we desperately needed. But this site, there's 70 acres in victory. And those were classified um, as uh, uh, brownfields and uh, by the EPA, which means it was pretty much toxic. Um, uh, before we were here, there were uh, uh, a lot of uh, rail lines. There was a power plant. There were um, storage facilities, grain silos. You can only imagine uh, the, the different chemicals and um, um, things that uh, were in the ground here. So um, we were able to um, uh, coordinate with Central Expressway when they were digging down and, and, and expanding Central Expressway. We, uh, we took our dirt, we dug down about uh, 30 feet, scraped the 70 acres clean and brought in the dirt, clean dirt from where uh, Central Expressway was being built. So um, that, set, that set the area up for success, having the center as, as a um, <clears throat> centerpiece um, uh, to uh, uh, provide the development opportunities around us. And it is incredible. I don't know how many billions of dollars uh, of, of uh, facilities and, and, and buildings have gone in around us and they still are going up. Um, but um, it, it, it certainly um, was a catalyst, the American Airlines Center for the victory development, the, the hundreds, you know, the thousands of jobs, the, um, the economic impact of this built facility is, is in a, at multi-billions over the years. Um, and, you know, it didn't have to be in Dallas. It didn't have to be in downtown Dallas, but it could have been anywhere. There was, there was our lease had expired at Reunion Arena. There was no commitment um, to stay in the city and there were offers to go to other places. But uh, the leadership at the time, Ron Kirk, our mayor, um, John Ware, our city manager, um, and then um, the ownership, which uh, was Ross Pro Jr., Tom Hicks, and then Mark Cuban came, came in um, uh, before the building even opened. Uh, and took over that ownership role. Um, they were committed to the city, and they made this happen. It was a huge, it was a huge uh, gamble, um, and um, a, a huge financial uh, investment for them. That uh, certainly has paid off. How has the uh, the guest experience for a concert or the fan experience at a sporting event changed over the last twenty years? You know, we've had two monumental um, events since we've opened the building. Um, most recently, we know COVID, um, and that that has basically shut down the experience. And um, but we do see that that's coming back next month. We have five concerts in September, five in October, six in November. So tours are getting back on the road. They're confident that they can make the plays. We're going to have a lot of safeguards in place, um, uh, like uh, temper. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, COVID testing, uh, mandatory uh, vaccines, perhaps in some uh, cases, will be mandatory. Uh, we'll be we'll be masking, um, asking our guests to wear masks. And I know it's not the perfect scenario and what folks are used to, but it's the only way we're going to be able to get back safely. Um, and then the other monumental event, um, uh, you know, since we opened was five weeks after we opened with 9/11. The 9-11 attacks changed the way facilities operate uh, pretty much forever. And uh, used to not have magnetometers or bag checks or uh, explosive sniffing dogs roaming the facility. And a lot of things that, that, that you, I guess, wouldn't see are in place uh, uh, to, to fortify and protect a facility. Um, and, um, you know, that, that as tragic as 9-11 was, you know, we'd never want that to happen in, in but our industry did learn from it um, and it's better for it. Um, uh, facilities in general, um, like ours, and then um, we'll be better from, from COVID and how we, how we operate and our sanitation standards and, and our, our employee health checks and things that um, you know, should make it a healthier and safer environment for our guests. When you, when you compete for, for big shows, you know, when you hear an artist is going on tour, 
Uh, you've got to work around the Mavericks and the star schedule. Some of your competitors uh, in the marketplace don't have, uh, you know, all those dates already spoken for. And I know you're glad to have all those dates spoken for. But walk us through the process of competing and trying to win a, a, a big, a big show that, on a tour that's that's going out. Competition is it's it's a long term play in the way you attract acts and shows and multiple shows. Uh, from from same act, say two night plays, three night plays, is you sell the tickets. Um, and I was talking about benchmarking and how we rank against other buildings. When when acts and promoters and agents that route these tours see us at the top of the list and they see our grosses and how much money we can generate, th this this market is 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 incredible for that. Uh, people love their live entertainment. They love their sports. Um, you know, we have 6 million people that we're selling to. So it's just incumbent upon us to make sure that we get the word out. We treat our guests right. We make sure they have a great experience that they'll buy the tickets, you know, again and again and again. Um, so the messaging is in our performance and it's not necessarily going and, 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 you know, asking them, you know, you know, and trying to, 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 to coax them to Dallas. They know Dallas is a must play. We've established ourselves as that. And um, they know that, that when they come to our building, we're going to fill it. And, and we have a big building. We sell a lot of tickets. It's going to be a profitable stop. So um, that's, that's what we focus on, just making sure that there's all, all the butts are in every seat. You have a favorite green M&M's uh, story or a writer with a performer? Oh, boy. Um, you know, they all kind of run together. All the fun ones are back at reunion. You know, at the, it, 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 you know that, you know, back 20, 30 years ago when I was start getting into it, the writers were, you know, this were, were full of alcohol and cigarettes and, and all that fun stuff. And now the writers <laughs> are fruit juices and, you know, healthy foods. And these acts that learned over the years, I, you know, I guess most of them admit the rehab, but even beyond that, they know to, to sustain their livelihoods and to stay on the on the road, they've got to they've got to do things differently. So, the, the backstage mayhem we left behind over on uh, Sports Street uh, with Reunion Arena. So, um, you know, it, 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 there's been a few a few um, that that have been interesting, including um, uh, some domestic. Um, well. I, I probably shouldn't go there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, before we let you go, um, we hear you have a special story from your career that predates the AAC. Um, something to deal with maybe Frank Sinatra backstage. Can you share? Sure. I mean, people ask me, uh, what's one of my most memorable moment, moments in terms of meeting acts? And, and I, it's, it's not my job to meet acts and, 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 you know, if, if, if they want a publicity photo with, with us or the city or a city official will accommodate it. Um, but we try and get, go out of our way to, to not insert ourselves in there. This is, this is work for them. And uh, they, they've got sponsors and family and people that they really need to spend time with their band. And, and um, so we try and stay out of their way, but um, back at reunion, when I really was just first getting into the business, I believe this was 1987. Uh, Frank Sinatra was performing and um, yeah, I, I, you know, I idolized him and I, I just wanted to get up close to him uh, and see him, you know, within a few feet. So I knew his path, what his path was going to be when he would, was going to the stage. And so I positioned myself and it was right there underneath section 115 Sully. You'll remember that, that 115 tunnel yeah. um, and that um, there was kind of an intersection where, I could stand on the other side of the intersection and as Frank approached, he would face me and then he would turn toward the stage. Well, back then I, I, I was a smoker and I, and I have, I don't smoke anymore, but uh, maybe fortunate that I was at the time because I was just puffing on a cigarette and he comes to that intersection with his tuxedo, um, his managers with him and his band is on stage playing his, you know, kind of the lead in music. And he looks, down the hallway, I'm about 10 feet away. And he, he, uh, he says something to his manager and he comes, starts walking straight towards me. And I was, I, I was panic stricken. I didn't know if he was pissed because I was, 
in his hallway or, you know, I didn't, I just didn't know. I kind of froze, but he walked right up to me, right in my face and said, Hey buddy, can I bum a cigarette? And, um, so I, uh, I was able, I, I fumbled with it, you know, uh, get my jacket pocket, pulled out a cigarette and, um, you know, I'm sure my hands were shaking, but I lit him a cigarette. He, uh, took two puffs, threw it down, stomped it out and then, uh, turned back around and, I went on stage. I think he said something to defect. Thank you. Something. I can't remember. I, 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 uh, I just know that that was a really cool moment. And it's one of the, the stories I, I like to tell when people ask me, um, you know, some of the memorable things that I've experienced over the years. Well, Dave, thank yeah. you for joining us and, uh, thank you for, uh, well, everything that you've done for me, for sure, uh, personally. Uh, Dave, I forgot to mention earlier that he's been my advisory uh, board chair for majority of my 12, 13 years here in Dallas. So I really do appreciate his guidance in there. And really want to say a thank you and congratulations to your whole entire team there at the American Airlines Center for 20 years. And we look forward to many, many more to come. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, Sully. Way to go, Dave. Congratulations. Appreciate it. By the way, did you keep the cigarette butt? You know, I thought about that many times since then. We, if I'd have kept that, I could have sold that probably for something. So auctioned it off. Yeah. All right. Thanks to Dave Brown. And now over to, Mount, to uh, Rachel with a word from one of our sponsors. Dallas is known for its big wins when it comes to sporting events. Whether it be Final Fours, Winter Classics, Pro Drafts, or even international soccer matches, Dallas sets the standard. And now it's time for our biggest win yet. We want the 2026 World Cup. The Dallas Sports Commission is working hard to bring the World Cup back to our great city, and we need your help. Head over to DallasWorldCup2026.com to sign the pledge to bring it back. Be sure to follow us on all social media at World Cup Dallas to stay up to date on all things 2026 World Cup. Thanks, Rach. There was big news, Monica, in the sports card industry this week. And so now it's our pleasure to welcome to the mic drop Dr. James Beckett, who, who is one of America's foremost authorities in sports cards and collectibles. Uh, Dr. Beckett earned a PhD in statistics from SMU. A few years later, began putting together basket, baseball card price guides. And before you know it, he had founded Beckett Media with enormously popular and influential price guides and, and other uh, things they did there uh, for all sports. Uh, Jim sold the company in 2005. He's the host of a podcast uh, called Sports Card Insights. Uh, again, one of America's experts on sports cards and collectibles. We welcome to the mic drop, Dr. Jim Beckett. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Great to be here. I love Dallas. Well, we love we love having you here. The uh, tell us before we get started. You, you sold Beckett Media back in two thousand and five. That was a powerhouse company that you had started really from scratch. What have you done since uh, making that that sale? Well, I enjoy being retired, <laughs> but it's probably semi-retirement. I do a lot of pro bono consulting, and that keeps me as busy as I want to be. But uh, you never run out of clients if you're not charging them, but you also are in a situation where they can never get an extended engagement out of me unless I really enjoy who I'm working with and what I'm working on. So that's been a lot of fun. Then a couple of years ago, I started a what, what has really become a daily audio podcast about our industry and having a lot of fun with that. So it's not a, not a job, but it's, uh, but it's a lot of fun. So I stay busy. Yeah, we're on episode 28. You're on episode 475 or something, I believe, the last time I, I checked. So that, that is well worth uh, people checking out. So last week, Jim, we were, we were rocked by the deal Major League Baseball made with Fanatics. You know, Fanatics known as an apparel uh, company. Obviously, they've been a disruptor uh, in, 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 in the sports business industry. But now Fanatics is Major League Baseball's exclusive trading card partner, which means the end of Topps baseball cards after a 70-year run. Uh, what, is that, what does that mean for the fan? Break it down for us, uh, Jim, if you would, please. Well, I'm not sure it means the end of Topps baseball cards. It means the end of Topps baseball cards being licensed by Major League Baseball and the Players Association uh, within that company. They may strike a sub-licensing deal with uh, 
fanatics, but again, the ball's in fanatics' court. They are disruptors. Really strange, not strange, but when the industry was riding so high, why they would bring in a disruptor? And it it must be because the powers that be think that there's even more growth that could be uh, uh, ushered in by fanatics taking a fresh approach to what uh, what was already a, a strong category and improving. So if you were if you were if you got a phone call. Uh, this afternoon from Fanatics that said, okay, we're disruptors. We've got a lot of ideas. They've completely remade the apparel industry. How can we disrupt trading cards, Jim? Uh, please give us some advice. What would you, what would you tell them? Maybe one of your recommendations would be to sub-license the tops, but what would you, what would you tell them? Well, they, uh, they have a license and, and that's all they, and they have an infrastructure for selling other people's stuff. So that's great. Uh, frankly, Kevin, this is one of the times when I wish I wasn't a pro bono consultant because I'd like to turn my meter on and help fanatics because I think they they have an important that's it, the industry's at an inflection point. But I, you know, seriously, if they call me and I, I will be talking to them, uh, I'm happy to give them my perspective. And my, my podcast is all about insights. Uh, you you want to be aware of history to not repeat it on the bad stuff, and you want to be. Uh, moving into some new areas, which I think they're going to bring some fresh air. They're going to do some things that are different and and different can be good. So I'd be happy to, uh, first thing is, you know, again, you don't need to disrupt everything, uh, but there are, so there are some things they could change, but uh, Topps wasn't doing a terrible job. Panini was not doing a terrible job. Upper Deck was not doing a terrible job. Uh, and they have a lot of uh, institutional and hobby knowledge combined inside those, under those roofs. And uh, fanatics would do well to perhaps strike some kind of a, an agreement with the, those incumbents. You mentioned we're at an inflection point and that the, the hobby is surging. What, why is that? Well, I think one of the main things was the COVID situation where people were sheltered in place. There, there, there were no sports going on. So there was no uh, sports uh, fantasy. There was no sports gambling uh, all over the world. And so people thought, well, I, I, how do I get my fix? How do, how, do I, how, how do I participate? Well, sports cards lived on and moved on. And so you could still be buying and selling sports cards. And um you know, people say, well, if I buy a pack of cards, I might get something great. Is that like gambling? Well, it's not really gambling if you have an edge, if you're aware of, uh, you know, very knowledgeable about the market. I'm trying to help people understand the market. There are certain purchases that, that are um, less risky than others. And so people figured that out. A lot of new people came in. And uh, when you have a, a supply-demand I'm going to sound like a professor now. You sound like you have a supply-demand equilibrium that's disturbed by the, in a good way, by the entrance of many new participants who've come and say, hey, what's going on? So there, there was a steady influx of people over uh, 2020 especially. And, you know, you've got constant supply and increased demand. It, it, it just kind of drove prices up. And when prices are going up, that brings in more people and it's uh, it's stabilized more now, but it stabilizes something that people say, "Hey, this is this is fun." It's it's they're not guaranteed winners like there were a year ago, where everything seemed was perceived to be cheap to these new people coming in. But it's it's uh, but it's fun. It's it's way more social, Kevin, than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. This is a it's a a, a very social media has been a big uh, people love to brag about what they've got. It's like Vegas. You go to Vegas, you, you don't come back from Vegas and complain. You're, you're going to talk about uh, your big win or your big score or the hand that you, that you won. And so it, it's, it's infectiously enthusiastic. So Jim, you mentioned Panini. We actually had the opportunity to chat with uh, Jason Howorth for, for a bit uh, in some of our earlier podcasts. Uh, we spent most of that time uh, talking about the enormous dollar amounts that uh, cards are selling for. We got into the, the digital landscape. Uh, you've mentioned some uh, of the changes here in, in collectibles. Uh, access, or assess the uh, state of the hobby for us. Well, uh, you've got to do pre and post the, the big announcement. Uh, Panini has so many outstanding, resourceful, 
uh, members of their team, you know, from Jason all the way down. So uh, they're going to adapt to the new landscape, but the new landscape means they, they're, they're potentially in a lame duck situation with uh, some of their uh, major licenses. But again, very, very creative. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure they're, they're going to, again, they were, well, uh, they put out some amazing products. They've had an amazing run, uh, but they're going to have to adapt to a new reality. And my guess is they will. And, uh, and that'd be a very positive thing. So I, I didn't know what NFTs were till, oh, I don't know, maybe two months ago. Uh, do you think that'll be a big part of future uh, sports collecting? I'm not sure it will, but uh, the, the beauty of the NFTs, two, par- two parts. One is that there's, there's really no cost of goods sold. You don't have to produce the card. It's, you know, it's, a, it's capturing a video highlight or something like that and then replicating it, which is digital. So that's one thing that is appealing to any entrepreneur of <laughs> something you could sell that doesn't cost you anything to produce. Uh, but the second thing, and this enters into the, to the uh, fanatics uh, agreement as well, is that there, uh, when Tops and Panini and Upper Deck and all the companies that have ever produced cards, they've only participated in the primary market. Uh, when a card is resold out of the pack, the, those companies don't get anything out of it. NFTs, not so much. In NFTs, when it's sold a second time, a third time, uh, in the crypto world, in the in the uh, blockchain world, there's uh, there there's like a chain of custody, and in the fine print of the Fanatics agreement, which is not a pure license, Fanatics is coming in as a partner with the uh, with the uh, leagues and the players association. So they're going to be having a seat at the table. And in the fine print of, of the announcement is that they are looking forward to participating. They're not clear on how that's going to be, but in the secondary market for, for cards. That's huge. Yeah. Panini, when for all the announcements of, of Panini having uh, six and seven-figure uh, sales of some of their cards, they don't participate in that. They only participate in the original sale. So... Um, they're going to figure out a way. So I, I believe this new agreement is a, is a game changer in that uh, sports, there's going to be the, the leagues and the players associations want a piece of that pie too. Secondary market sales. So Jim, uh, Sully and I have had numerous conversations about this of needing to go home and dig our box of cards out to see if we have anything valuable but uh knowing that this is uh you know your business uh what cards or other collectibles that you have that you may have at home are i guess most important to you well i i i'm i'm the only guy in america i think that can say i have too many cards <laughs> <laughs> i had a lot of cards when i was a kid i got cards for my dad i i had cards in the company and so i, I i've got a great collection i love it uh i don't really I prefer to acquire rather than sell, but my wife is is kind of saying no new cards. <laughs> You've got enough. So, uh, but I still uh, mess around. So it's a uh, it's just a great hobby. My my favorite pl- player was Roberto Clemente. He's long uh, passed uh, through uh, and got an amazing uh, hero to have. Um, but uh, again, I just when I was doing the, the price guides, the company. As, as you know, for anybody that's involved in the sports world, you, you really shouldn't deify the players. They're, they're, they're great at what they do, but uh, you know, I tried to have an unbiased price guide where you, where you weren't, uh, again, each player has uh, a certain value and skills to emulate, and uh, I'm proud to uh, have some of their cards and some on my, on my wall of fame that's behind me where I show an example of some of the cards that I have that I like. You have an impressive card collection going on, so that that's impressive. But um, on another front, Honus Wagner's um, card went for six point six million dollars uh, over the past week. Do you see another card breaking that in the near future? This this is going out of out of the roof at this point, right? Well, it's an amazing world we live in, where that uh, amazing sale for six point six million for one card admittedly more than 100 years old and, and the most famous uh, iconic card is, the, is, the, is bumped off the front page. It's the third biggest story of the week. <laughs> but, uh, 
yes, Marcus, there there will be. A, in fact, it will be. There will be a higher sale. Uh, I don't know how soon it'll be, but generally, people to get in the news, they're going to have to go higher, and so that that, that will be the case. Uh, it could easily be another one of the of the Hannes Wagners, or it could be one of the of the uh, of the uh, nine or ten uh, rated Mickey Mantle uh, fifty two tops cards. Uh, what's happened in our industry is that uh, the bragging rights and the flexing that that, that kind of comes in with the with the social media is that that six point six becomes a target. <laughs> so there's going to be something next week that's six point seven, or or the or next month, or in a few months, and uh, some of the bidders are are um, extremely wealthy individuals or these uh, or these fractional syndicates that can buy the card and then fractionalize it to collectors who would not be able to afford the whole card, but uh, may, may get one-tenth of one percent of it. <laughs> and, and I don't know what kind of bragging rights that is, but if I had a bunch of shares of Apple or Google or, or uh, uh, Amazon or any large company, I wouldn't be complaining if I had hundreds of shares or thousands of shares that I didn't own the whole company. Uh, so that's the way they're looking at it. Look at it as a little stock market, and uh, and that's 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 democratized it and popularized it. So yes, Marcus, there will be a new headline sometime, and it'll be another card, and and then there'll be another one after that. That's the way it's going now. Marcus is investing in NBA hotshots, I believe, right, Marcus? Yeah. Isn't that you're what you're you're saving your money for. Yeah, Top Shot is Top Shot's great. Top Shot. Like. Like you, like you touched on, uh, Dr. Beckett, the Fanatics is in an interesting position because Dapper and Top Shot are evaluated at 2.6 million, I think, or billion with a B. Um, so Fanatics is looking up on the upfront. Well, again, I think the Major League Baseball and, and the Players Association, they're, they're looking ahead. And, and, and the, the, whether the road goes through NFTs and that becomes uh, huge, I don't know, but there there's some aspect of that that's that's hit a responsive chord. I, I still think there's no substitute for, and again, I think that's probably one of the points of this show of being in person. You know, the, the tangibility, the the being at the uh, at the at the arena, at, at the stadium, at the at at the rink to uh, to uh, persist. So that's why NFTs. You know, it's there, there's a little distance there, but um, but I think it's here to stay. We'll see. Well, Jim, thanks so much for uh, for joining us here on the Mic Drop. You, you really, you are the most thoughtful guy on this topic that there is, and we really appreciate you sharing your your insights with us uh, today. So we we'll, may have you back uh, again one day when there's when there's more <laughs> eye popping headlines. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, everybody. Now over to Rachel. Looking to get out of the house in a safe way? Try having a relaxing weekend at the spa or a fun family staycation for spring break. The Omni Dallas Hotel is right in the heart of downtown, within walking distance to some of the area's best restaurants and unique shopping. The Uptown Terrace Infinity Pool is a family-friendly retreat during the day and a great place to watch a romantic sunset over the Dallas skyline at night. Go to omnihotels.com Dallas for the best offers and plan your post-quarantine staycation today. Because why? Big wins happen here. Thanks, Rach. And now we are thrilled to be joined by Meredith Land of NBC5. October will mark 18 years for crying out loud that Meredith has been at NBC5. That is hard to believe. She anchors the five and six o'clock newscast, does tons in our community. She's won a bunch of awards, too many to name, but she does have a national Gracie award on her shelf. And that folks is a big deal. She's a Clemson Tiger. So we, 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 uh, we, she's got that going for with a lot of success on the gridiron lately. <laughs> Uh, Meredith, thanks so much for joining us here on the mic drop. Oh, I'm so honored. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. We normally keep it pretty light here on the mic drop, but one of the awards that you won was for a special you produced from Afghanistan. So I, I imagine you've been thinking in recent weeks about some of the people that you met while reporting those stories. So we'll talk a little bit about, about, about that. You're right. Um, in fact, I need to probably post a little more on social media about my experience there. I was working in Charleston, South Carolina, where there is an Air Force base and just really got to know the men and women that live in that community. 
and did a lot of stories with them. And during Operation Enduring Freedom, um, just, just asked, hey, could we go over with you uh, to the base in Kandahar? And um, just kind of really born in it was just telling the stories of the men and women who were over there on the base and the jobs they did, the everyday jobs, and, you know, leaving families behind for so many months um, and, and just kind of giving them, those families, a peek into what they did, you know, every day. And so sure enough, they approved me to ride on a C-17 through the night, stopped in Germany for a few nights, and, um, and then onto the base in Kandahar for an indefinite amount of time. As you know, in the military, uh, you know, you don't know when you're getting back, so you know you will. But um, so it was December. And my, my parents, I was probably, I think I was 25, living at home, making no money in my first TV job. I went over with a photographer. My parents let me go. I, to this day, I don't know why they let me go, but they did. And I'm so grateful. Um, and I got to Kandahar. We lived in tents. And really, we would just wake up early and, and tell the stories on the base and beyond the base. We saw the special forces come and go. Um begged them one day to let us go into the villages to see the people, um, which they were really hesitant to do. But what we learned was all the missions they did daily just to connect with the people in those villages and, and deliver food and clothing and, and all the humanitarian efforts that were going on there, we got to be a part of. And I remember, I have so many pictures, I need to, to maybe I can send them and share them with you, but um certainly post them, just the, the children were so vibrant and happy. They were dressed in colorful little robes and caught like almost costumes, right? And, and makeup and, um, and the, and the mothers were just like, like us. I mean, just mothering and loving. And um, I, I, you know, there, it was a happy time really from, from what we saw in those villages. Of course, we were um, doing some heavy duty stuff at night. We could hear explosions in the mountains at night. Um, but I really got a chance to see just the missions of positivity and the humanitarian work that the U.S. government and, and other countries were doing at that time, while also telling stories of the men and women on the base. So, you know, you realize that not everybody, you think when they go, everybody's at war, everybody's out in the field, um, you know, in the bunkers and all that is kind of what you think as an American citizen. But someone's monitoring the generator meter, you know, right there on the base. And there are cooks in the mess halls and the mess tents and everyone has a job and just getting to know them and, and tell their stories was such an honor. I had no idea we'd be where we are today, um, of course, but, but it was a gift for me. We, we were there for about a little shy of three weeks and I got home in time for Christmas and flew back over, but it, it was, it was pretty eye opening, and it, it just makes you realize the sacrifice of our military and not just when they're there, but, you know, being a mother now, leaving your family, you know, and, and putting country first before it all God first and, and country um, is, is a sacrifice that not many of us know. You have made, since you, since you've been in Dallas, you have made a, a real connection with President Bush and Mrs. Bush, both. And as a result of that, you've been invited to uh, moderate various things at the Bush Presidential Center in Dallas and, and always do a great job. But in April, when President Bush's book, Portraits of Immigrants, came out, which, by the way, includes lots of sports uh, uh, stories, Albert Pujols and David Faraday and Annika Sorenstam and Dirk Nowitzki are all in there. But anyway, you got the opportunity to interview both President Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who happened to be on video because of the COVID stuff at the same time. I was there. It did get a little off the rails a few times. But given your sort of humble beginnings that you're talking about and having to hustle to get on the air in Charleston, what did you think when you realized you're on stage with President Bush and with, Arnold, with this gigantic screen right next to you with Arnold Schwarzenegger coming in from his kitchen in California? You know, Covering President Bush in those early days in Charleston when he was in office and then working in this market and being so grateful to cover him as he moved here. It was just, it's, it really is unbelievable. What strikes me each time is just how 
real he is. And I know you have a close relationship with him. Um, you know, he's just so introspective and, and caring and normal. I, you know, people ask me all the time about him. He's hilarious. You know, he, he knows how to elevate a moment and make you feel every single person feel special. Um, and just the way he cares about veterans and he really does, you know, and I've seen that little twinkle in his eye when he talks to the men, men and women um, in our military and veterans. I mean, that's really where it's at for him. This book that he, you know, we, you and I've done a few of these together and, the, and covered his books. I think it's so important right now. I really do. I think our country is in such a pickle, right? And, and the border is always an issue. But to highlight the way he has and to, to paint each immigrant that has come to this country, you know, for opportunity and to meet, for me, I got to meet some of, the, some of his subjects. And they just, they radiate this energy and this, this smile. I mean, you know, just this gratitude and pride for our country and the way he's able to capture that in each painting, um, it, it kind of changes your, your perspective on immigration in this country and how much so many people bring to us and make us better, you know, make us smarter, make us more innovative. That exhibit is so important and that, that book really is. I'm not just promoting it, I really, I really felt it when I was there and you feel it when you talk to President Bush. You felt it when you talked to Arnold. I mean, what a character. But just, I mean, just Google him and the way he got here and his drive and his pride to be an American is, is pretty remarkable. That was kind of a wheels off night, but it was fun. You know, you got the flavor of each man and, um, and you could tell how grateful Arnold was to be even a part of it with President Bush. So I, uh, I urge you to... Bush yeah, and President Bush that night said, uh, told told you and Arnold, with my muscle, with my brains and Arnold's muscles, we can solve this immigration uh, <laughs> challenge. So yeah, never, was, uh, never one to miss a, a moment, right? I mean, know. he's hilarious. I mean, we had some technical things that night just with Arnold's shot and and the way Pre President Bush could have his own show. I mean, he really could. You know, just being in this business for so long and learning how to ad lib in a moment, and knowing that this is live, you know. He's so good, isn't he? He is. <laughs> so, Meredith, I'm, I'm going to switch to one of my favorite people that uh, I get to work with here. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about your friendship with Charlotte Jones uh, of the Cowboys. Understandably, Jerry gets a lot of the attention uh, from the business side, but uh, Charlotte is a big powerhouse in her, her own right. So if you can talk about uh, your, your friendship with Charlotte Jones. You know, I started interviewing Charlotte Gosh, when I got here and more than 15 years ago, um, probably I started. And what's so remarkable about her is, and I'm humbled to say this, is to watch her growth. She never misses an opportunity to grow and to be better and um, to be more compassionate and empathetic. And, you know, she gets a lot of that from her dad. She does. Um and I think coming up in, in the NFL, the way she's had to at a young age, she's learned grit. And she's, one thing she's told me along the way, because I think as women in, you know, for her sports, for me, media, you know, we just want to succeed and we want opportunities and we want to hang with the, you know, with the big boys, as they say, right? Yeah. But but to stay true to who you are, and that's that's one thing she does well, is, you know, she has this finesse with people. She doesn't try to be her dad or her brothers or whomever, the commissioner. Um, she's, she's Charlotte, and she's able to, um, you know, really make magic in her world by just being herself, her authentic self, which... I know that sounds crazy, but it's fun to watch her uh, with people because you think people always say, oh, she must, is she icy what she like? And she's not. She's actually quite the opposite. You know this. Uh -huh. um, you know, she's, she spends time with people longer than probably she should. <laughs> I watch her, you know, after she speaks and she just, she has a way she'll, she'll put her, her hand, you know, just on your arm and she'll listen. She's a listener and she's a learner. 
And I think that's why she, you continue to see her really grow and, and succeed the way she has. And I'm, her dad, whenever I interview her dad or I'm around him, he just, he, he always cries. He always cries when he talks about her because he's just really is so proud of her. And he says, growing up in Arkansas, you know, the first, the first steps I heard in the morning, the first sound was the, the sound of her feet hitting the ground. And da, 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 da. You know, she was always up first and ready to go and smart as a whip. You know that. Yep, I I agree. I I can envision her uh, doing many of our our bid presentations for for Final Fours and NBA and other stuff. And uh, yes, she can mesmerize a room. I think and uh, how she speaks, uh, it's it's quite amazing. It is. It is. I, I was with her one time. It, it's something where she didn't realize they were going to call her to speak, and not just like give some remarks, but you know maybe give a 15, 20 minute speech off the cuff. And they called her up and she looked at me. We we're sitting there and she said, I think they want me to speak. I said, yeah, you got this. Walked up there like the whole thing was planned, nailed it, brought down the house. You know, I mean, she has a lot of gifts, but she has a lot. She's very applied. You know, she's she never gives up and she's always growing. So she's an inspiration. I tell you what, I, I can't wait to see what she does. Before we get to your download here in a, in a minute, uh, Meredith, speaking of learning, Monica often teaches a course at SMU, and I think her students and our listeners would really benefit, any young people would benefit from your story on how you first got on the air in, in Charleston. Oh, well, you know, there's some humor in this, so don't tune away yet. This is, gets funny. <laughs> I won't bore you. Um, you know, I grew up in Charleston, actually, and I went to Clemson. And I was an English major, journalism minor, had no clue what I was going to do. I always tell kids in college that I'm like, it's so hard. It's the hardest time knowing, figuring out what you're going to do with your life. And then you got to pay the bills too. And my parents were cutting me off. And so I got an internship at the NBC station in Charleston, WCBD, count on two news. Um, And I thought, you know, I was actually pretty shy at the time. (laughs) Hard to believe. And, um, and I said, I'll just write behind the scenes. I'll kind of learn what this is like, you know, summer before senior year. And so I loved it. I had the best summer. I would write for the main anchor. Her name was Nina Sossaman. I just thought she was everything. Um, And I loved it. I loved the spontaneity of TV news and local news. And um, so the end of the summer was wrapping up. had to go back to Clemson. And a Category 4 hurricane came through Charleston. It was headed right for us. Hurricane Floyd. And a lot of the reporters, you know, very green, thought, well, I'm not going to risk my life and stay and cover this hurricane. I'm out of here. So people left, reporters left, photographers left. And I grew up on the coast. So I thought, well, what's the big deal? So I raised my hand and I said, I'll stay. I'll stay and cover the storm. So as my family evacuated the coast, I stayed. And they gave me a live truck, a photographer, and an earpiece. And they said, well, you'll do traffic. And I was an intern. So there I was on I-26 as the evacuation was underway. And I would, I would go from car to car. I'd say, well, how long have you been sitting here? And they were all stalled for hours and hours and hours. Oh, it's, they would cuss. And I knew you couldn't do that. So I'd run to the next car, you know, and it would go like that. And um, anyway, the story ended up well, the hurricane ended up missing Charleston, it went upstate, but the story ended up being the governor flying over and not reversing the, the lanes out of Charleston, that I-26 corridor, and people being stuck for hours and hours, and, you know, some of them in dire health conditions. So there I was at the center of the big story, um, who knew, and the local radio stations called me Hurricane Hottie, <laughs> which... At the time, I hated because I wanted to be, I wanted to be such, a, I wanted to be Diane Sawyer, you know, I wanted to be a journalist, and I hated that, but um, <laughs> I'd love it now, right, in my 40s, um, but uh, the general manager, I think, kind of just got a kick out of me, and, and I guess he saw something in me, I don't know, but he called me in and he said, you're terrible right now, but one day, you'll be good, you have a reporting job when you graduate Clemson and the next year I started and soon after that got the morning show and the rest was kind of history. 
Well, so Monica, tell your students, whatever it takes, raise your hand, volunteer and, and get the job. Uh, so, okay, Meredith, this is the portion of the podcast where we ask our guests, what are you downloading? What are you streaming? Could be a music, is- podcast, TV, radio, you name it, a movie. What are, you, what are you watching these days? This is what I get most nervous about because I really, for so long, I worked the late news that I didn't watch any TV at all. So I'm really behind. Like I've seen Dirty Dancing, but I, I haven't watched a lot. So I'm really playing catch up. But I watched The Undoing recently. Love it. It's not new with Nicole Kidman. And Great. oh my HBO. gosh, I could, I had to binge watch it. I loved that. I'm sort of embarrassed, maybe a little bit, to say that I listen to Howard Stern every day on the way to work. Depending oh. on who he's interviewing, I don't listen to all the mess that he and Ronnie and the gang all you know talk about. But I love his interviews. I've le- actually learned a lot over the years from Howard. Just he's a listener, right? He's not just he's, he doesn't take up the whole room. He's listening, and that's where the magic is in those interviews. You know, if you let it go a little bit, they give you the goods. So I listen to Howard. <laughs> Now that I wouldn't, I did not see that coming. Monica, did you have a chance on your travels to uh, watch anything? No, uh, the, what I downloaded the most was the the radar and uh, hurricane tracking uh, app, uh, Sully, uh, while I was uh, away in Mexico. But I did do some reading, so uh, I've uh, I'm a big Michael Conley fan. So I I opened up the Poet and uh, the Scarecrow, uh, and actually finished a few books. I don't think I've read a, a book in oh I don't know five ten years probably. So it was a good uh, yeah. breakaway. He's the Bosch creator, if I'm not yep. mistaken, right? Yep. Yeah. Correct. So, so get into that. My I love download- that you admit that too. By the way, that you don't, you're not a voracious reader because <laughs> who has the time? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's true. Most people say they are, but they but they're really doing what I do, which is binging stuff like "This Is a Robbery," the world's biggest art heist on Netflix. Four episodes, fantastic true crime, unsolved mystery uh, from many years ago, from 1990. Really cool. The Barnacle Brothers. Uh, directed it highly recommend it uh well M- meredith thanks so much for uh, for joining us today this is great you're great at your job and you're great uh at the way you go about it and the way you treat people and that's why you get all these interviews because people oh. trust you and and you, you know you ask great questions and you're fair and there's no surprise but I, I i do i am a little uh was a little disappointed to see on the landline your great instagram feed your son wearing a philadelphia 76ers jersey I'm going to chalk it up to that it was the 4th of July weekend and he was being patriotic or something. So That's we got to get. Yes. I think we were looking for some red, white, and blue. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't okay, count us yeah, out. We, we got to get some Mavericks gear over to the, to the land household. So yes. thanks again, <laughs> yeah. uh, Meredith, for all you're doing for joining us uh, uh, today. On behalf of Monica Paul and the Dallas Sports Commission, thanks to Meredith, to Dave Brown, Dr. Jim Beckett. Another, another fun show. Thanks also to the Mic Drop production team, Chris Amelia, Marcus Carr, Olivia Petnicki, the crew at Vocal Media, and our fearless leader and showrunner, Tony Fay. Until next time, thanks for listening, everybody.